According to the clock on the back wall, I have three hours and 15 minutes to preach. And, and I'm figuring anything short of that, I'm a hero. But um, no, we changed the battery in that clock two weeks ago and it was doing the similar kind of thing. Clearly the problem is not the battery. So got to go to a new mechanism or something of that sort. So anyway, uh, if you would open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to the book of Jonah. Uh, if you don't have them with you, that's okay. We'll have all the, the text up on the screen. Um, the, the, well, today, Katie, but those who serve in the media team miraculously make it appear for us, which is always wonderful. I greatly appreciate that. And, um, and you'll have a handout. If you're new here, you have a handout inside the bulletin that is an outline of the message. It's a great place to keep notes, but it's also helpful if you want to review the message later and you don't want to have to think about taking notes now. It'll have a lot of things there for you as well. So uh, we will be in Jonah chapter 1, uh, and we'll be looking again. It's, it's going to overlap with last week because we covered most of chapter 1 last week, but we're going to back up and review a lot of it, but not review it in the sense of talk about the same thing, but go over different things as, as we look at it. Because last week we looked at the chapter through the perspective of what God was doing. This week we're going to look at the chapter through a perspective of what Jonah was doing and how he was interacting with that. So we'll be looking at it a little differently. But if you would, join me in prayer as we approach God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word, Lord, attune our hearts to Your voice. Speak to us by Your Spirit. Transform us into the image of your Son, we pray. Help us to understand and know who we are. What you've called us to be. And how we are to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In September 2001, Time Magazine called Stanley Hauerwas America's best theologian. The day after it came out was 9-11, so nobody knew or cared at that point what Time Magazine said about him. Not even Hauerwas, for he wasn't sure, and still isn't, that best is a proper category for theologians. I tend to agree with him. But Hauerwas has often said, We Americans live at a time when we believe we should have no story except the story that we chose when we had no story. We call this freedom. Now, on first hearing that, aside from a chuckle, I thought, huh? (laughs) Maybe you did too. But I think it might be worth thinking about just a moment. So if you would bear with me, let's think about what he's saying. To say that we choose our own story is, in essence, to say that we choose our identity, who we are. Core to American belief, he is saying, is the idea that we either choose our own identity or at least that our identity is the product of our personal choices and that that is what is freedom. Well, I don't deny that choices are in the recipe. Harwas's point is that to think that we are what we choose is self-deception. For our choices are influenced by so many factors outside our control which influence them. I mean, we're all familiar with the person who says, I'm just going to be my own person and I'm going to do what I want to do. And then they're doing the same thing everybody else around them is doing. And you just kind of scratch your head and wonder, it doesn't seem like 
that's what we're doing. The reality is none of us can actually do that. As we'll see, Jonah apparently thought that he could lose his identity. His connection with the people from whom he came. The chosen people. That he had no story. That he, he got to erase his past, his story, his history and say, I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, he seems to have forgotten that he was chosen and that being chosen defines who he is. He had a story, whether he liked it or whether he didn't. Remember in this story that Jonah is us. We talked about that in week one of this series. And by the way, if you weren't here for week one, please go back and listen to week one as you will find that it's essential for understanding this book as we go through it in terms of how we're looking at this book. But Jonah seems to have forgotten that, that he was chosen. And as the only Israelite in the story, we are to identify with him. Truth be told, we, we often believe the lie that we choose our own story or our own calling. In reality, we, we've been chosen by God for our calling. We can run if we want, but like Jonah, we will fulfill that calling one way or another. And it's a calling we have because of who we are. We pick up in the middle of chapter 1, overlapping, as I said, with last week. And this week, looking at it from the perspective of what Jonah is doing. We're going to look at the text under three headings. Identity lost, identity found, identity in death and resurrection. And so if you would read with me in Jonah 1, we're going to start in verse 7. And by the way, just to set up this text, since we're starting in the middle of the chapter, the Lord told Jonah, the beginning of the book, to go to Nineveh and preach against it. Jonah ran as far as he could from the presence of the Lord, sinking further down with each step along the way. Now, we don't learn until chapter 4 that the reason Jonah ran, or at least the reason he says that he ran in chapter 4, is because he thought that when he goes to preach against Nineveh, God wasn't actually going to destroy Nineveh, but he was going to save them, and he didn't want God to save Nineveh. Now, we might think, well, that's really awful of, of Jonah, but the reality is that you wouldn't have wanted God to save Nineveh either, because Nineveh were the very people who, in 20 or 30 years, were going to destroy you. So, of course, you want them destroyed, and you don't want God to forgive them. That's just the, the way the people reading this book would have understood it. So, even as much as we might look at Jonah and say, bad Jonah, the reality is, yes, bad Jonah, but bad us. We all like to save our own skin. And so he's asleep on this boat that he's heading the opposite direction of God's will for his life. He's been woken by the captain of the ship from a deep sleep, and he's told to pray to his God in case he could do anything about their crisis. Their crisis is that they're going to die in the storm in this boat being thrown in the sea. And we read starting in verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, if you're anything like me, 
I read through those questions, I read his answer, and I assume that he's answered everything they've said, and I just keep going. But that's not what happened. He avoided nearly every question they had. If it's for me, just take a message. Get that covered. Jonah has obviously not had a cup of coffee since they woke him up, for he he barely engages their questions. And when he does engage their questions, he, he does so in a way that distances himself from who he is, the identity given to him by God. What is your occupation? No answer. Where do you come from? No answer. What is your country? No answer. Of what people are you? Or we might say, to whom do you belong? Extremely vague answer. To say that he was a Hebrew goes back six generations before Abraham. But really the word Hebrew didn't even really relate to a particular people at this time. It, it really was a generic word for nomad, wanderer, stranger, foreigner. If it refers to ethnicity at all, it includes a large number of people outside of Israel. But he essentially just called himself a foreigner. Where are you, who are your people? I'm a foreigner. Okay, great. That, that's who you're, tells me that you're not one of us, but, but who are you? He doesn't answer that question. And after saying that he's a foreigner, effectively, he never goes back to answer what people he is joined to, what country he is from, or his occupation as a prophet, which is a tiny little detail that might matter in the story. Though Jonah has forgotten who he is, thankfully he has not forgotten who his God is. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who has made the sea and the dry land. Where it says Lord, you'll notice it's in all capital letters, which means it's from the Hebrew Yahweh, the name of God. The God of heaven is how Israelites or Jews, would, which came later, but they would speak of, the, of Yahweh to Gentiles. Sea and dry land was suddenly relevant. It was a relevant point for these sailors because their ship is the tiniest little piece of dry land that they have in the midst of a sea. And if you remember back in Genesis 1, God, in the midst of chaos and, and lifelessness, God starts to order things, and one of the very first things He does after light is He takes the the waters and the dry land and he, and on day three, and he separates dry land and water. He separates water from water, and then he separates, on day three, land and water because you can't have life without there being a separation of those things. And so he separates them. And they're about to be mixed back into the sea, which means that they're going to die and enter into chaos once again. So Jonah has their attention when he mentions that he serves the God who made heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. The sea and the dry land, that's important to them. Jonah's amnesia over who he is, maybe active rejection of who he is, helps us understand his behavior. He was not living as who he was because he somehow believed the lie that he could escape his identity and calling. And as long as he ran from his calling, it didn't go well for him. It doesn't go well for us when we run from our calling. Now the first recipients of this book 
were aware that this was about them as much as it was about Jonah. Israel had forgotten their identity as God's chosen people. They had fallen asleep while the nations around them were lost in darkness. They were worshiping the gods of the nations. Like Jonah, they failed to live into their calling and were running away from it, just like he was. Whether it be Israel or later Judah, where we get Jews, that's what we call Jews, is the tribes of Judah, whether it was Israel or Judah, the two kingdoms that were of the divided kingdom, they both ran toward apostasy, the worship of false gods. They forsook God. They forsook their identity. They'd give lip service to God and who He was, but their lives were not transformed. Like Jonah, they had failed to live into their calling and were running away from it. And like Jonah... They will fulfill that calling one way or another. This book is about us too. If you think that your identity is the product of your own choosing, you're believing the lie that your identity isn't determined by forces outside yourself, such as your creator, your heritage, your home and family. More importantly, as God's people, we are chosen in Christ. To be chosen in Christ determines our identity. Christ is the true Israel, the community through which God will bless the world, and that is our identity when we are in Him. How do we live into that calling rather than run away from it? By conformity to the image of Christ, by putting off the old man, the old woman with its deeds of darkness, and putting on the new person, Jesus Christ, with the armor of light, By realizing that we are not our own, we've been bought with the price, we belong to a people. Christ has made it so. Like Jonah, who lost his identity, quite often we, the people of God, have lost our identity again. But our next section, we're going to look at identity found, and that's in verses 10 through 16. Let's just read those verses together, if you will. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, had told them. We'll get to that in a moment. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? The sea may quiet down that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you." So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. On verse 10, the men suddenly become afraid. Now, the narrator tells us that Jonah at some point prior, by the verb tense we, we get this, at some point prior to this discussion, 
he told the sailors that he was running from Yahweh, likely when he first boarded the ship. Well, they, they had no reason to care about that. They weren't concerned. I mean, you serve your God, I'll serve my God. My God takes care of this area, that your God takes care of that area. But we're out here on this boat. We're not where your God reigns. That's how they would have thought about this. We aren't, they, they wouldn't have assumed that Yahweh was the maker of the sea and dry land, the, the supreme God. They would have just assumed, okay, your localized deity, Yahweh, whoever he is, you're running from him. Why would we care? It's not going to affect us. You can tell people in our culture today that you're a Christian, and most of them think, well, what has that got to do with me? Because they don't understand who he is, that he made all things. And that ultimately he is the one they will stand before. He's relevant. They just don't know it. And when Jonah first boarded the boat, he told them he's running from Yahweh, but it, it, it wasn't relevant to them. But now it's relevant. Why? Because they are on the little piece of dry land called a ship, and they're about to be dumped into the sea. So Jonah is the reason. Now that they know that, and then they connect it with the fact that he told him he was running from Yahweh, they know the reason why they're in trouble. So they ask, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Things are only getting worse on the ship, so the urgency increases. Jonah's answer is not what we would expect for a person who has forgotten his identity as one of God's chosen ones. Well, you need to throw me, hurl me, just like God hurled a great storm upon the sea, and they were hurling the cargo. Jonah says, basically, treat me like the cargo. Don't treat me like a human anymore. Throw me into the sea. And then you'll be okay. Verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I mean... Maybe it's because he figured out that he was dead one way or the other. I mean, if he doesn't get thrown into the sea, they're all going into the sea, so I'm going to die anyways. So I might as well save them. Maybe that's his motivation. We don't know his motivation, but he is suddenly willing to die for these sailors. His own recklessness has caused the near demise of the sailors, but now he is willing to die for them. Jonah might think that he is the sacrificial lamb for them. But in some way, he'll actually become the scapegoat for them, though he doesn't know it yet. You see, in Leviticus, in the Day of Atonement, they had two goats. They would take, one would be sacrificed as innocent on behalf of the people. The other would bear the sins of the people and would be led to the wilderness where it would have to live out away from the presence of God. That's what the wilderness was to them, a place that's away from God's life, a place that's away from all that is flourishing. That, so now Jonah's about to be the scapegoat being thrown into the sea because, no it or not, he's going to actually live when we get to that point. But he's cast from the presence of God for the sake of what? For the sake of the people on that boat. Now, of course, Christ is both the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat. He covers and fulfills both of those. Jonah's willing to lose his life in the name of Yahweh in order that they may live. To take the sin, if you will, with him into this sea wilderness. Now, the, the sailors, they're not willing to throw him in. They're more righteous in many ways than he is in this story, which is fascinating. They fear that they may be held accountable for an innocent life, <clears throat> so they row harder and harder to get back to dry land, but fail to do so. 
When nothing else works, they pick Jonah up and throw him overboard to his death. The sea is immediately calm, just as much as when Christ said, Peace be still to the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Little does Israel know that their death, their captivity into Assyria, which was an abyss of its own, from which they would never return, the ten lost tribes of Israel, we've all heard about those, erased from history, ten of the tribes of Israel's twelve. Little do they know that that very event is the life of the world. Now what I'm about to share, I'm going to just tell you up front, this is not an introduction to Christianity 101. So it's, it's thicker into the weeds, maybe 301, I don't know, or however that would be counted. But it is crucial to understanding the deep coherence of Scripture and our real identity through Christ. So bear with me for just a moment. I'll be here briefly, but it's, it's important enough to spend some time on. And maybe you won't get it this time. I've, I've gone through it before when we were in Genesis chapter 48. Maybe you got, it, you got a little bit then, didn't understand it. Maybe you'll understand it better this time. Maybe the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time. You, you, it, but that's okay. You've got to get exposed to it at some point. Remember this. Jonah's call to Nineveh, and we talked about it earlier, resulted in the sparing of the Assyrians who would later destroy Israel. These northern ten tribes. So when I'm, right now I'm speaking of Israel as part of the, the tribes. Ten, ten of the tribes. Two were called Judah, Israel and Judah, at this point in their history. Okay. Within one generation of the events described in this story, Israel is cast into oblivion, dead, gone. Now, how could they ever think that that would be the life of the world? Well, Hosea, who was a prophet at the same time as Jonah, I think he helps us understand how. Remember Hosea, he was told to marry this wife, Gomer. The name should have been a clue. There's a problem here. I don't know, but Gomer. <laughs> and and uh, she was trouble, there's no doubt. But they had three kids, and the second two of their kids, their names are relevant to what we're talking about. So I'm going to talk about their names. We read in Hosea chapter 1, verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth uh, to a daughter. The Lord, then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah which means not loved. How would you like to name your child? Not loved. I bet you didn't do that. Yeah, definitely not, right? Yeah, definitely not. Um, For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Wow, that's potent. And then look at what happens when the next child's born, beginning in verse 8. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Those are strong things to say. And he said them to Israel. The ten tribes called Israel at that point. And these verses were fulfilled by the annihilation of Israel... By the Assyrians. But then there's a promise, starting in verse 10. Listen to the promise. Yet, yet, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. Now, how can a lost Israel become innumerable? That's the question it begs. You've been cast into Assyria, you've been destroyed, and now you'll be innumerable. How does that possibly happen? 
And this right here is central to our understanding of the Christian faith. So bear with me one more moment. In the place, it continues, where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. He looks to this day and he says, the people of Israel, the ones that will be lost in history, from them along with Judah who does come back from captivity, they will come under one leader. Jesus! They will come under one leader. And they will be innumerable. In Romans 9 and 11... Paul explains that Hosea's promise, this ones that we just read right there in verses 10 and 11, Paul explains that that promise is fulfilled with Gentiles now being grafted into Israel. Israel, listen, follow this. The ten tribes of Israel died in Assyria, and they were raised through Christ as the Gentiles were brought in. I'm going to say that again because that's just mind-numbing at some level. The ten tribes were essentially erased. And out of that death, God raises up ten tribes to make up the beggar part of Israel called the church with a bunch of Gentiles being grafted in to the vine. That's Paul's theology. Now next week, we're going to see when we, when we dive into chapter 2, we'll see why this is exactly what the text is about. We'll look at that next week more in chapter 2. But it's not only relevant because this is exactly how we Gentiles are brought into the people of God. As Ephesians 2 makes clear, we are no longer strangers but fellow citizens. It's relevant there. But it is also relevant because it has everything to do with how God works in and through us in the world. It has everything to do with how God works in and through us in the world, and this is why it's important to spend time on it. You see, this is what Paul was talking about when he says this to the Corinthians, quote, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Listen, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who, who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal, mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Death is at work in us, but life is at work, that's the implication, in you. Paul, in other words, was, to use the language of Jonah, Paul was being tossed overboard into death for the benefit and rescue of the Corinthians. Or as he said to the Philippians, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You see, for Paul, to know Christ was not about knowing more information. It was not about knowing more facts to believe. Nor was it to know Him in a heartwarming experiential way. For Paul, to know Christ was to know Him by partaking of His sufferings on behalf of others and trusting God for resurrection in Christ. 
Jonah by telling them to throw him overboard for their rescue, for their salvation, is about to know Christ in a way he never had. He's about to know Christ. Yes, I understand him in the Old Testament. don't have time to explain all that, but he, Christ has always existed according to John 1.1. He's about to know Christ in a way he never had. And we too, the church, the people of God, are being given over to death for Christ's sake, which is the life of the world. Our dying is the life of the world, but we must willingly accept this call, as Jonah finally did. This is our identity, Christ, the new man. You see, the the moment Jonah is willing to die on behalf of these sailors, we know that he's going to be willing to go to Nineveh. Why? Because both scenarios are him willing to die that others might live. Because surely, as we've discussed, his going to Assyria will be the death of him and the people of uh, of Israel. This is our identity, Christ, the new man. Our identity is one of crucifixion and resurrection. That is our identity. Not the old self-centered, selfishly ambitious, justice-bound, in other words, making sure everybody gets what they deserve, self, but the self-giving, other-serving, forgiving, forbearing, patient, kind, joyful, compassionate self, which is Christ. That is our identity. But what does Jonah find as he's headed for sure death? Well, he finds out that death is a big fish. Let's look at that. And there are third heading, identity and death and resurrection. And for that, our verse is verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If there's any doubt as to whether Jonah is a comedy or a tragedy, it is settled here. Only in a comedy can a big fish swallow the villain when the time of his execution comes. Only in a comedy. It's like, and and I saw this as a kid. I can't tell you what movie it was in. I just remember seeing this at least once, if not multiple times, but... In the, in the Western, comedy Westerns, of course, uh, you've got the guy that's being hanged for his crimes or his supposed crimes. He's maybe falsely accused. And as soon as the trap door on the gallows, you know, he's standing there, he's got the noose around his neck, the, the hood over his head, and the trap door releases, and he falls. And as soon as he does, you see below that there's a horse waiting for him. He lands in the saddle, takes off the noose, and takes off. And everybody laughs because that moment of tension just suddenly became a moment of laughter. It's, it's a comedy. And that's what you see here. Jonah's being thrown into the sea. What's going to happen? Well, he's surely going to be drowned. But more than that, if you're an Israelite hearing this story. You see, in order to understand what they were expecting, we have to look at their story. See, part of the problem why we don't even get that it's a moment of laughter, we have to hit the laugh track button so that everybody knows you're supposed to laugh. And the Lord prepared a great fish. <laughs> you know, that's what's supposed to be. We don't get it. Why don't we get it? We don't get it because we're thinking about whether or not it's possible for a human to live in a fish for three days and three nights in the middle of the ocean. And the Israelites could care less about that question. They've got other things on their mind. 
We're somehow thinking that if we can prove that a person could live three days and three nights in the heart of a, of a fish in the middle of the sea, that we've proved that the Bible is God's Word, which we haven't done at all, even if we could prove it. This just proves that we have a great fish story. But what it does say and what it meant to them does prove something, something magnificent about God's Word and who He is. What were they expecting and why were they laughing? Well, we have to start in Genesis 1 to understand why they laughed. There in Genesis 1, we read this in verses 20 and 21. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Now, now, because of English, having the word creatures in here from two different Hebrew words, I'm just going to help you see the difference. So, the, the, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. That's sherets, the swarming things, creatures in the sea. And let, the, let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 21, so God created the great, maybe you remember from the first week, gadol. That's the Hebrew word for great. Gadol. Everything in the book of Jonah is gadol. You've got a great storm. You've got a great wind. You've got a great fish. You've got a great city. I mean, everything's great. Gadol is used throughout that book repeatedly. Well, here we have a gadol. A great what? A great, the, the great sea creatures. So we think, oh, it's about the same thing as what we read a minute ago, living creatures. No, no, no. That's not... Sheretz, it's tanin. Um, and because we would get really confused if they translated it properly, we don't. It's the great sea monsters. <laughs> the sea monsters were created then. And we think, what sea monsters? Uh, well, Nessie. I mean, let's start there, but no. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, to understand what's being communicated, you have to understand how Genesis 1 differs from what everyone else in their culture said. In their culture, outside of the, the uh, Old Testament religion, it was held that a god, let's take Baal, for instance, that Baal ordered the world out of chaos by doing battle with the sea monsters, the Tanin, and defeating them. However, in Genesis 1, God orders the world, making it habitable, and then he creates the sea monster, the sea dragon, or you could call him the ancient sea serpent, that threatens our existence, the very thing that threatens our existence, and that's what the sea monster was. In their world, it was that thing that threatened their very existence. Think about if you're in Indonesia on the day of that tsunami that happened so many years ago now, and all of a sudden the sea rises up and completely annihilates Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. That's the sea monster. And when sea and land mix, it destroys life. To be sure, these ancient creatures that they thought of were terrifying. That's why it's essential that sea and land are divided, for death swallows up life when it is otherwise. But listen to Isaiah 27.1. It speaks of the day when God will miraculously rescue His people from captivity in Babylon. Isaiah says, In that day, the Lord with His hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan. Now, Leviathan is just another word for sea monster. 
Okay, so think sea monster. The fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon, the tanin, that is in the sea. The sea monster that we read about in Genesis 1. He'll slay that. Nations, see, but this is all metaphorical. It's about Babylon. Nations who consume other peoples were metaphorically described as the dragon in the sea. Case in point, Daniel 7, where he speaks of the coming empires of the world. And Revelation 13, both describe these empires that are in the world as great beasts coming out of the sea. Empires that destroy human life. The Psalms, on the other hand, speak of Leviathan when all is well. We read this in Psalm 104, quote, How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro. And Leviathan, there's the sea monster, which you form to frolic there. It's a plaything for God. And when all is well, the ships go back and forth, and everything is divided, and everything is fine. But for the ship that Jonah is on, it's not going so well. Leviathan happens to be really hungry, apparently. Jonah and and, and the audience expect that Leviathan, the great sea monster of death, is going to swallow Jonah up when he is tossed over, much like the disciples on the boat with Jesus in the storm are scared to death that they're going to die. Because death is that great mystery that we fear. But the Lord prepared a great fish. Not a great sea monster, a great fish. That's not quite as terrifying. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not signing up to jump in the sea and get swallowed by a great fish. But if I had my choice, I'd rather take a great fish than a great sea monster. And it turns out for Jonah that death for him and his willingness to be sacrificed on behalf of the sailors was not all that fearsome either. Jonah's identity is found in his baptism. You see, Jonah's downward descent, which began early in chapter 1, is completed as he descends into the abyss in the belly of a fish. The Israelites were familiar with water as a means of death and resurrection long before Jonah. When they came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. Yet by going into the sea, they were actually saved. Which is not to say that it was a safe sea, because the same sea drowned Pharaoh and his army a few moments later. It was anything but safe. But they went through with faith in God. Paul refers to that crossing of the Red Sea as their baptism in the sea. Jonah's having a baptism of his own, entering into the death of Christ as he dies for others and finding himself traveling through the waters of death and burial safely in a fish. Since Christ compared his own burial and resurrection to that of Jonah's, We are safe to find it as a picture of baptism. That great fish points us to Christ, in whom we too can travel safely through death with him and are raised to new life in him. Some wonder if the early church based their identification of Christ with a fish as a symbol of Christ, uh, if that's because of this connection of the fish and Jonah to Christ. And, and the answer is maybe. We don't, we don't know for sure. But it's still a good connection if it wasn't their reason. Jonah found his identity again in his death and resurrection. And 
So do Christians in our baptism. We are buried with Christ, Paul says in Romans 6, through baptism into death. And we are raised with Him to new life. That is our identity. We live into that identity as we practice dying and rising. Dying to our old life, living into our new life. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, practicing resurrection. I saw a video the other night which showed the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. That stage in between, when it's in its cocoon, is called the chrysalis. During, during that stage, the caterpillar essentially digests itself. It's kind of weird and kind of gross if you think about it. Eliminating all but certain cells that are needed, and then those cells forming into an, into an entirely different being. From then, then the caterpillar stage, or what it was as a caterpillar, which by the way, a caterpillar is basically a stomach with legs. It, it, it grows to, uh, the, the, the estimates vary, but let's say it minimally 100 times its size in two weeks. Imagine if your baby did that, you know. Whoa! <laughs> See, it forsakes its old identity by eventually consuming itself. All it was doing was consuming, 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 until it actually just consumes itself. But then, it becomes a new self, which spends its life pollinating plants in order that they flourish and reproduce for future generations of butterflies. And then they, 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 they lay eggs, and they produce a next generation. This is what baptism symbolizes for us. We are going into our chrysalis stage where the old dies and the new is formed in Christ and we're raised to new life. You see, we we not only get baptized, we have to live into our baptism. We have to live into our baptism. That's our identity. We can run from it all we want. We're not going to get away. That's who we are. Now, this first audience has been thrown in the sea. The, the Israelites that first read this book, they had already been thrown into the sea and swallowed by Assyria, a beast out of the sea. But the message of Jonah to them is that death is only a big fish. What is the Assyrian captivity which you have feared? What is the Assyrian captivity that you have experienced that was the death of you? What is that thing? That had you known it was coming, it would have been the greatest fear of your life. Or what is that thing that you fear will come? That might be the death of your life as you fear it. What are the enemies of good that you fear will destroy your life, your home, your civilization, your future? Jonah's answer for all of us to that is, do not be afraid. It's a big fish. You'll be resurrected. And to say it's a big fish isn't to say it's nothing to be feared at all, but it's not a sea monster. It's a big fish who ultimately turns out to be Christ in whom we are hidden and will come out safely on the other side. How often have we, like Jonah, like the Israelites who were serving other gods, how often have we forgotten our identity as God's chosen people? Well, it's revealed in how we live, so we can look at how we live and, and answer that question. Is our identity in Christ? And if so, 
we must be willing to enter into a life of dying and rising for the benefit of those on the ship with us. Our community is the ship that we're on. And we have to live a life of dying and rising if we're going to bring the knowledge of Yahweh to them. What does it mean to be chosen in Christ? Well, it means that we have a story. A story that's been given to us by another. A story that we are a part of. That we don't write our own story. We are a people. We have a purpose to be salt and light in the world. To enter the sufferings of Christ. To bring life to the world. We, we have a people. We have a story. We have a purpose. And finally, just we all need to call to mind that in Christ, death is a big fish. That doesn't mean that it doesn't bring fear. It just means that once we are thrown into the abyss, we find ourselves safe in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this ancient story, there are so many things that are relevant for us. The modes of thinking, the events, the history, it's all far from us. But the experiences, the fears, the ways that we think, the lies that we believe about ourselves, they're very real for us. Lord, help us all to recognize that there's an old person to which we must die that thinks it's writing its own story, its own way. But there is a new person in Christ and help us to live into that person, Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's stand.